Welcome to The Report Card with Matt Malcolm, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. In America, there are two contrasting arch narratives when it comes to the path of personal success. According to one, and it may be more popular on the political right, individuals are the ones primarily responsible for their own successes and failures. Wed to the idea of pulling oneself up by their bootstraps, this narrative holds that those in poverty could climb out of it through sheer willpower and determination. Another contrasting narrative, more popular on the political left, frames failure as the result of systemic forces that hold individuals without privilege back, and it focuses on how systems deny a fair path to personal success. A new book by my colleague Ian Rowe argues that both of these pictures miss something important. In Agency, the four-point plan for all children to overcome the victimhood narrative and discover their pathway to power, Ian charts a third path, one that emphasizes not only personal agency of the individual, but also the importance of institutions like family, school, and religion in developing that agency in the individual. In addition to being the author of Agency and my colleague here at AEI, Ian is the co-founder of Vertex Partnership Academies, a new network of character-based high schools opening in the Bronx in 2022. Previously, Ian was CEO of Public Prep, a nonprofit network of public charter schools based in the South Bronx and Lower East Side of Manhattan. Ian, welcome to the report card. Nat, great to see you, my friend. And wow, nice intro. Well, you know, uh, you've laid the groundwork. <laughs> it makes it easy. All right, Ian, so we talk about these two narratives. And, you know, it's a little bit contrived, but I think it captures very real ways of seeing paths to personal success. So first... This sort of systemic forces narrative, this thing that focuses on all the challenges that folks without privilege are facing, you say it gets some things wrong. Mm. Tell me your critique. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me on, Nat. And uh, and as you mentioned, for the last decade, I, I ran a network of public charter schools right in the heart of the South Bronx, Lower East Side of Manhattan, you know, where some people might say, well, those, you know, those kids are not privileged. And, uh, you know, with 2,000 kids, primarily low-income, black and Hispanic kids, nearly 5,000 families on the wait list each year. And all these families, one is a shot at the American dream. You know, and, and in my entire 10 years running schools, I never had a situation where a parent said, please, Mr. Rowe, ensure that the curriculum teaches my kids about how oppressed the system is and how how much they're not going to be able to make it based on their skin color or their gender. And yet, over the last few years, I've sensed this acceleration of a narrative of everything you can't do because you live in America and because of you're of a certain race. And so, yeah, you know, I do set up these two uh, meta-narratives where I think more and more young people in this country are losing their ability to have a sense of their ability to lead a self-determined life. So the first narrative I do set up is blame the system, and the other is blame the victim. And in the blame the system narrative, if you're not successful, if you're not achieving the American dream, it's not your fault. It's America that's the problem. Like, America is this inherently racist nation, or it's inherently oppressive nation, you know, the, there's a white supremacist lurking on every corner. Capitalism itself is evil. 
uh, and these systems are so daunting, so overwhelming, so discriminatory, so rigged against you that your only solution is a massive government intervention to come to your rescue. And you see this in critical race theory, things like the 1619 Project, anti-racist doctrine. And so obviously that's a narrative that if you're a 12-year-old kid and you hear that over and over and over and over again, at some point you start to feel, wow, maybe it's true. Maybe I don't have a shot. This whole idea of learned helplessness. But on the other side, on the other extreme, like if you're not successful, it's not America it's the problem. You're the problem. You know, you, you're the architect of your own failure. There's some pathology that you have. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. As you said, you didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Of course, that narrative just happens to neglect what happens if you're growing up in perhaps a really unstable family, lack of a faith commitment, you weren't part of a school choice environment, so you had to go to schools that didn't educate you well. It's really hard if you're that young person. And yet I feel these two meta narratives are adding up to what I call a singular lie that is impeding young people's ability to have a sense of agency in their own life. And so I felt compelled to create a new framework or a third way that I call agency. So if I can repeat back what I've heard, this blame the system narrative is sort of disempowering because it robs agency of kids by saying, well, it's the system. And once we fix that system, then you'll be able to flourish. Right. You got to wait. You right. Know, you've got this, you're this passive player that's just, you know, as Martin Luther King, you're just flotsam and jetsam on the river of life where, you know, someone else is dictating your outcomes. And the other disempowerment could be from this pull yourself up by your bootstraps where it denies the fact that you got some headwinds, pal. You, you have headwinds, but... Life is not easy, you know, and, and sometimes I think many of us who have, quote unquote, made it or have been successful, we forget the key institutions or interventions that allowed us to be really successful. You know, oftentimes, you know, just think about your own life. Your family, I presume, was really important or you had mentors or perhaps you had a faith commitment or, or you went to a really great school. You know, these things matter. In the district where I run schools, in District 8 in the South Bronx, of the 2,000 students that started ninth grade in 2015, four years later, only 2% graduated from high school ready for college, meaning that they started ninth grade and either dropped out or they did earn their high school diploma but still could not do reading nor math without remediation if they went to college. And yet, if you're in that district, there's a cap on charter schools. So if you, if you had a great idea to launch a, a new school in that neighborhood, you couldn't do it. So imagine if you were a kid in that, in that area. You can't even get on the first rung of getting a great education. We have to acknowledge that when we say, well, you should have just made it. This is a great country, which it is a great country, but we have to acknowledge that there are key institutions that form the moral character, the initial capacity to become an independent person. We just have to acknowledge that. So your book is called Agency. And I'm going to just say from the outset, sounds like you're on team, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, <laughs> right? I mean, it's called agency. But that's not actually what you're getting at. So in your telling, how is your agency model different from that pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Yeah, you know, the uh, so I've been presenting at college campuses around the 
country and, and presenting this framework of these two meta narratives. And a law student asked me a question the other day, and he said, "Look, if I can't blame the victim, and I can't blame the system, then who do I blame?" And it was just this very interesting question because for this young person, he needs a culprit. He needs to have an answer for why America is not working as opposed to having an understanding of the institutions that really allow most human beings to flourish. And so that's why I've came up with this framework agency, because what you're saying is right. Like their concepts like grit and perseverance, like this idea of the individual, but agency, I take to a level of this idea that agency is individually practiced, but socially empowered. So where does someone get this idea of, you know, rugged self-determination? That has to come from somewhere. You have to believe that your actions actually relate to your ultimate life outcomes. So I define agency as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by moral discernment, right? So, so think of it like a vector or velocity, where velocity is not just speed, it's speed and direction. If all young people have the ability for free will or to make decisions, is that it? Is that, you know, but freedom is not just a free-for-all. Freedom actually exists within some kind of moral code, some kind of decision-making structure of what is right versus what is wrong. So you can't just pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have surrounding forces that are helping you shape what are the best decisions that most likely lead to good outcomes. So agency goes beyond the concept of grit and perseverance, even, and we'll talk about it, even things like the success sequence. There's a moral dimension to agency that's about hope and optimism and how you lead a better life. You know, there are lots of people that have grit who are not so nice people, who are determined to achieve bad outcomes. And a lot of times we see outgrowths of people like that. So agency, in my view, allows young people to think differently about their lives because now they have the benefit. And we'll talk later about the framework that I put forth of how young people develop this sense to become morally discerning. So, Ian, you also talk quite a bit in your book about mediating institutions, right? And so the formulation that you just talked about dealt a lot with individuals and that agency needs to be shaped towards a a good direction, a value of good. What are the mediating institutions that you highlight and why do you think they're so important as a counterbalance to this pure individualist framing? Yeah, Yuval Levin, who wrote a great book, A Time to Build, has has this wonderful line where it's you know it's not just it's not just being free. Human beings have to be formed for freedom. It's really a powerful concept of how do you handle freedom. I actually just had the honor of interviewing Shelby Steele, the great author, and he was talking about the history of black people and contemporary issues around race, and he said, the issues facing the black community today, our biggest challenge is not racism, it's actually handling the burden of freedom. And the the reason I feel that this is such an important concept is that how do we as human beings 
understand what is right and wrong. Where does that come from? In my book, Agency, I talk about Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who is the founder of Head Start, and he developed this bioecological theory of human development, where he essentially has these, a child is at the center, and there's these nested circles where each circle represents a certain microsystem where the most proximate are those institutions that are very close to you and shape your moral character. So you would imagine, first off, is your own family, right? Because that's the first part of the nucleus. Then it radiates out a little bit, your faith community, your school, and that all that represents in many ways the microsystem. And then layer after layer, there's media, there's government policy, there's culture, there are all these sort of external radiating forces. And the point that Bronfenbrenner made, and also just common sense, the stronger that microsystem, the stronger that nucleus of your family, strong school, strong faith commitment, the stronger the cocoon is around that young person that helps them develop the ability of right and wrong to be socially acclimated in a positive way. The weaker that microsystem, then the more that these other external forces that may have nothing to do with your values, that may actually may be hostile to your development. So look at the power of social media, like the fact that kids now can close their door and they either have a computer or an iPad or an iPhone, and suddenly all these negative images or negative forces are coming in in ways that you would not want. And for me, I want to revitalize the key mediating institutions that start with family. And I have a framework I call three, family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. Those are the four pillars that I think if more young people embraced those, we'd have a much greater opportunity to usher in an age of agency where more young people do feel that they have the ability to lead a self-determined life, where it is about their agency, but they're not alone, that they can be supported by each of these pillars. And I'm, I'm happy to talk through how I think those pillars play a role in young people's lives. Yeah, I definitely want to unpack that. But this idea of agency being both willpower and a moral direction is, you know, is, is worth taking apart a little bit more. So to someone who says, well, look, you know, agency is a good in and of itself. You don't have to tie it to some sort of moral trajectory. And, and who gets to define the moral trajectory and so forth? And I think part of this is the mediating institutions. But I want to just drill down. Why do you think that that directedness, that moral directedness is an essential part of agency? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, again, agency I define as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So your free will is anchored. That's your personal responsibility. That's your own decision-making. But again, there are lots of people who have grit and perseverance. You know, there are some despots who are some of the most determined uh, people in the world, and yet their efforts can result in all sorts of chaos and theft and murder. Evil, right. (laughs) Yes. And so the question is, do we just acknowledge that? We... You know, freedom, it's a very powerful concept. Once you start to realize we can't have a free-for-all, we can't have a good society if there are no constraints around the behavior that is expected, particularly of the rising generation. So the question is, where is that coming from? You asked, well, who decides what the moral direction is? You know, we have... Now, centuries and centuries and centuries of collective wisdom 
of those behaviors that are more likely to lead to good outcomes. And we also have a recognition of those institutions that are the most reliable ones to impart the values that the rising generation should take for itself, starting with a strong family, starting with a a faith commitment where there are, there are a set of moral codes. And increasingly, these kind of institutional values, in my view, are being repudiated. And it is crucial for those of us who work with young people to not step back and say, anything goes, basically. You've got free will, anything goes. That is a chaotic society. And this is my call to action. And I'm, I'm certainly not alone. And in fact, there are millions and millions and millions of Americans who don't need you know, Ian Rowe to tell them that morals matter or that mediating institutions matter. But in the most disadvantaged communities, for sure, where you do have breakdowns of certain key institutions, most notably family, loss of faith, lack of school choice, we need a proactive effort. And this isn't, this isn't blame the system in the sense of you need a massive government intervention. There just needs to be a, a recognition that it's actually the local institutions that have the greatest power to influence outcomes. So you talked about this sort of radiating concentric circles that you were thinking about, right? Individual decision-making is at the center, and then you have these sort of mediating institutions that are close in, and then as you radiate out, you have larger systemic forces, social media, and so forth that are more diffuse, harder to get it. And certainly not necessarily in line with the values you may want for your own children. And you can have disagreements across all these levels of linkages. And the discussion so far... It might be a book that's about uh, just understanding this. But there's another reading of the book that I want to offer, and then I want you to just tell me if I've got it wrong or not. Instead of a call to action for individuals or a call for us to tamp down this talk of learned helplessness, uh, another reading of your book is that we need to install agency and responsibility in all of us, not like all the individual students out there, but you, the reader, need to be engaged in this building of agency. So according to the two dominant narratives, when young people don't succeed, it isn't our fault, not the reader's fault. It's either larger remote instructions or the young people who don't try hard enough to escape them. In either case, it's not the reader's fault. It seems to me that your book, argues that that isn't the case, that these mediating institutions, schools, houses of worship, the family, even things like libraries and recreation centers, these are part of this system of mediating institutions and that we can and should participate in building them as a means to build those inner concentric circles. And so it is a call to action that we're part of this system that isn't totally remote, but is a little bit closer in. So that reading lands between simple individual responsibility or remote structural challenges and should be a call to action not for individual students out there, but for all of us. What do you make of my reading? No, there's wisdom in that. I mean, the book is a call to action for all Americans to recognize that we are not powerless. Even if you're not a kid growing up in the South Bronx or whatever, that you have agency. And, And by the way, if you look at issues of loneliness, isolation, depression, the high levels, that is now across class, across race, across gender. So there's something happening in our country where more and more young people across all these dimensions aren't feeling their ability to lead a meaningful life. 
the Archbridge Institute just did an analysis where they asked young people age 15 to 24, do you feel you have a sense of agency? Do you have the ability to lead a meaningful life? Only 39% said yes, which was almost half what people in higher age groups believed. And so if you're the reader, and partly if you feel that you have a sense of agency in your own life, you need to preach what you have practiced in your own life. Let me give you an example. Nicole Hannah-Jones is the New York Times reporter who, you know, big architect of the 1619 Project. She wrote an 8,000-word essay in the New York Times Magazine where all of it is a treatise on to why the black community must have a $14 trillion reparations program in order to make up for all the, the victimhood that has occurred over the centuries. In this piece, she says, there is nothing a black person can do. Doesn't matter if you get married, doesn't matter if you get educated, doesn't matter if you buy a home, doesn't matter if you save. Quote, none of those things can overcome 400 years of racialized plundering. End quote. Just think about that for a second. Imagine if you're hearing that kind of messaging as a young person, you start to think, wow, I don't really have a shot. And yet, in Nicole Hannah-Jones's own life, and good for her, she's done all of those things to lead a quite prosperous life. And in fact, you know, she was talking about the racial wealth gap. It's impossible to be closed. You know, and it is true that in the United States, based on the 2019 Survey of Consumer Finances, the average white family has about $160,000 more net wealth than the average black family. And for some, that's proof of the historical and contemporary oppression. But if you look at the same data, the same analysis, and take into account just two factors, education and family structure, the average married, college-educated black family has about $160,000 more than the average white single-parent family. The reason I feel that that's really important is that when more and more young people and readers of the book understand that there are these factors that truly make a difference, then maybe we can become ambassadors for agency as well, that you don't have to rely solely on Washington or some other you know, massive enterprise to be the key to your salvation, and also recognize that every kid is not alone, that there are these local mediating institutions, and, I, and I'm anchoring them in family, faith, and education as the key to then become an entrepreneurial risk taker. And again, we can talk more about that. So the reader plays a critical role in this because we need a society that is organized around these principles of agency and that Please, 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 when you read this, it's not just about, oh, what a great book. That was really interesting. It's also about you now becoming an ambassador of agency. And that, especially if you're someone who's been, quote unquote, successful, how did you get there? It, it didn't, you didn't just turn out, you know, out of thin air, turn out to be the, the successful people. There were institutions or individuals that played a key role as you, you, you know, came into your own development. So I, I want to get to the free framework and a couple of other things, but we've hit this section on our show called Grade It. I'm just going to throw out some things, and I want you to give it a letter grade, A to F. And, um, and F is failing, right? F is failing. We say <laughs> it straight out, and you can fail. There's no great inflation uh, in Any this. of these. We'll just trip through these quickly. Give us a little explanation. Are you ready? 
I am ready. All right. Your parents' education in Jamaica. My parents' education in Jamaica, formal education, I'd give it a B. But their life education in Jamaica, I give an A plus because it was they learned what was most important about life. I mean, you know, my parents met when they were very young. They were married for 48 years before my dad passed away. My dad used to pick up my mom on horseback for dates, you know, in the country in Jamaica. And my dad went to England to get his education because, you know, Jamaica was an English commonwealth at the time. He missed his buds, you know, his my, my mom, and he wrote for her hand in marriage to her parents. And after much consternation, she took a boat all by herself. This is in the mid-1950s from Jamaica to England to go, you know, meet her man. They got married and they had this incredible hard scrap of life. They had me and my brother in England. But their life was an adventure. So, you know, formal education, yeah, good. But what they taught my brother and I about what's important in life, A+. plus. A+. plus. All right, Ian, you worked at MTV. Music videos over the last decade. Are there music videos? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I assumed you would know. No, I was when I worked at MTV. Uh, so first of all, music videos over the last decade, I'd say D minus, because also they're just not as creative. For the few ones I even see, they're they're. It's really interesting. So again, talk about concentric circles. If a kid doesn't have really strong messages about their own self identity, like imagine if you're a young girl or a young boy and watching a lot of contemporary music videos, you see a lot of violence, you see a lot of guns, you see a lot of sexualization of young people. And if you don't have a good core, that's the message that is seeping through. And I worked at MTV for six years and I was, <laughs> I tried to be the guy who was bringing more positive message integrated into our programming. So I would give it a D minus. All right. So let me change this up on you. Which decade? Of music videos, would you give the highest grade to? In in the original era, in the in the Michael Jackson, you know, thriller when John Landis was making works of art, he was like making mini theatrical productions. No, music videos as a contemporary art form when they first came out, they were beautiful forms of expression. Aha, you know, take on me. Like these videos are just like spectacular. Now they just seem like it's a homage to excess. There's very little, in my view, moral storytelling or this, it's just, again, it's just excess. So I would say in, you know, when MTV back in 1981, when it first came out and it was the, it was a shocker. It was like Destination. And, and I remember there was a Friday Night Videos show on NBC. That was Destination Television because like, oh my God, this artist who I love, who I only hear now I get to see their expression in a whole new form. I remember the first time I saw the movie Purple Rain. This was back in like 1983 in the summer. And I went into this theater and this explosion was on the screen of creativity and talent. It was amazing. And you just don't see that anymore. So, so D minus to current videos. But if you bring me back to the 80s, it was a beautiful art form. All right. The role the liberal arts play in building agency. The role of liberal, well, crucial. So I'm launching a new network of high schools, Vertex Partnership Academies, in the Bronx this August, focused on the international baccalaureate model. 
organized around these ideas of equality of opportunity, individual dignity, common humanity. And those, there's going to be a big focus on liberal arts. And within that, the whole idea of democratic discourse, the ability to cite evidence, actually interact with people that you disagree with. The Knight Foundation just released their latest survey on the First Amendment. It's a survey that's been done for about 20 years, and uh, it's all about the First Amendment and how high school students feel about freedom of speech. So by the way, so liberal arts in school, A+, if it's done right. Only 19% of high school students said that they feel comfortable expressing an opinion which contrasts with their teacher or the other students in their classroom. Think about that for a second. Only 19%. And there was a second finding, which in some ways is, is even more chilling, which is that only 57% of high school students feel that news organizations should operate without government censorship. So if you flip that around, nearly 40% of high school students are kind of okay with the idea of news organizations operating with government censorship on the premise that there's all this misinformation out there. And crisis, crisis, you know, ding, 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 alarm, 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 (laughs) right? And the power of a liberal arts education is hopefully to have young people build a strong enough sense of their own knowledge base, their own ability to express themselves, because we can't have a free society if a very, only a very small percent of people are willing to have the courage to say obvious things. And I feel that that is what we're, we're hurtling towards today. And again, it's part of why I've written this book, Agency. I run schools because I want my kids to know you can do hard things. A good liberal arts education can help young people develop that sense. Grit, as articulated by Angela Duckworth. I would say grit is a B plus A minus because part of agency is absolutely perseverance, self-determination. And and I think Angela Duckworth, um, thank you for writing the book. What's been interesting, she is now attacked as a blame the victim person. She, you know, there are people who go after her to say, wait a minute, you're saying grit. That's code words for pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Why aren't you acknowledging all the social forces that make it impossible for a young person growing up in Appalachia or the South Bronx to demonstrate grit? You, you know, you're just like the rest of them. You're a blame the victimer. And I feel for her, and this is why I wrote this in the book, and there's a whole passage about grit and growth mindset and how much Angela Duckworth and Carol Dweck are criticized for putting forth this idea that you have power within. If you are not completely on the orthodoxy that it's the system that's the problem, any idea that says you have personal grit is now criticized. So I applaud uh, Angela Duckworth for what she did. I give the book a B plus and A minus. I believe agency takes it one step further to say that one doesn't just develop a sense of grit out of nowhere. How do you become so determined that, you know, you're not going to give up. That has to come from somewhere. And not only does it need to come from somewhere, it has to come from somewhere with the ability to discern right and wrong. So it's not just grit towards a negative outcome for your life. It's shaped. We have to be formed for freedom. Teach for America. 
So I was at Teach for America in the early days with Wendy Kopp and so inspired. Uh, but I don't know. I think they're losing their way a little bit. So I would give Teach for America in its early days, you know, the domestic Peace Corps when we were running around recruiting amazing people to teach for at least two years in urban and rural schools. A plus. It was, I mean, honestly, when I left Harvard Business School, I did the crazy thing. I went to work at Teach for America, this nonprofit organization. Everyone around me was, dude, you just went to Harvard Business School. You need to go out and be a captain of industry. And I said, what's more important than trying to inspire the rising generation to become teachers in schools that, we, that need great teachers the most? And it was all about equal opportunity to an excellent education. That was our line. But I do sense the organization is shifting to much more social advocacy, you know, DACA, just issues that, in my view, are a distraction that it as an organization should continue to focus exclusively on outstanding teachers going into schools and developing exceptional outcomes for kids, period, and leave the other stuff behind. Charter school authorizing in New York City. Charter school authorizing in New York City is probably the best in the country. We actually have an environment, the State University of New York. Now, actually, there, there are several different authorizers um, in New York State. There's the State University of New York. There's the State Education Department. And then there actually is the authorizer in New York City. That one I'm not so psyched about. But the problem in New York City right now is that, and in New York State, there's a cap on charter schools. So if you had a great idea to launch a school, you could not do it. And I believe, as part of one of the elements in my free framework, education, school choice is fundamental if you really want to put kids on a pathway to success. So in general, our authorizing apparatus in New York, particularly with the State University of New York, is an A+. The others... Not so much. But they're all operating under a policy environment that is restricting the ability for young people to be able to choose a great school. And that's highly problematic. Last one. The public's understanding of Martin Luther King Jr. Wow. The public's understanding of Martin Luther King Jr. I think that is... I think that's a C... And the reason I would say it's a C is that it seems that many people project their own desired understanding onto Martin Luther King. And I even write about Martin Luther King in my book because I do believe that a lot of what he talked about was a sense of moral agency, that it wasn't, you know, he, he you know, instructed his young people who were protesting, there is dignity in protest, there is dignity there, there's, it's not that you, you have to express your anger by being racially victimized. How you respond is crucial in our long-term ability to actually change the conditions they're all fighting against. So it wasn't just about the force of your free will. It was the force of your free will guided by his definition of empowered protest. And yet I think different people have different interpretations of who he was as a person. So I just think it's inconsistent. So the public's understanding, you know, I think is is just mixed. So I'd give it a C. 
All right, grades are in. Thanks, thanks for going uh, on the speed <laughs> round, Ian. Hey, back to the book. One complaint that some might have about the book is that it gives that even if the systemic forces narrative doesn't tell the whole story, that there still are systemic forces, and that we don't give it short shrift, uh, or that we should not give it short shrift. We want leaders to address those systems, and your argument could be used to give leaders a way out of facing that. How do you respond to such complaints? So, first of all, barriers are real. I just described to you a situation in New York City where there are, I think now, close to 70,000 families on the wait list for charter schools, and yet there's a real barrier. There's a cap. You couldn't. You can't start a new school. So, Clearly, there are real institutional barriers. There is systemic racism. There is structural racism. There is institutional racism. You know, what I want our students to know is that there is surmountable racism. The whole point of the book is not to deny that they're barriers, and by the way, they're barriers for everyone. There is no human being that, you know, doesn't face intense and in inevitable challenges within, within their own life. The question is, are you prepared to overcome those? Are there institutions that are shaping your ability to develop what I call the overcomers mindset? So yes, you're absolutely right, Nat, there will always be people who ignore the nuance, and just want to go straight to, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't believe systemic racism exists, or that person's just not pulling themselves up by the bootstraps. Those are the lazy explanations. And yeah, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm vulnerable to that argument. I really try to make it clear in the book that barriers are real. And so that doesn't mean we all shouldn't be fighting to change, for example, charter laws to create more school choice. But I don't want to set up the dynamic that says we have to wait for these barriers to be lifted. You know, otherwise, you've just got to be this passive player. That's where I feel that kind of ideology falls down, where the blame the system, people say these barriers are not only real, they're insurmountable. And that is crippling for an entire generation of kids. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly seems clear that if individual agency is contingent on first dismantling all the vestiges of the structural problems, structural racism, as well as the myriad other policy problems. Well, capitalism. That's right. I mean, all yeah. these things, then agency is going to be put on hold for some time. Not a great message to send the current kids that are learning what they should be doing with the things they're learning. I'll give you an example. You know, in designing Vertex Partnership Academies, this high school, you know, we visited lots of high schools across the country. And one we visited in New Orleans, a group of ninth grade kids that, you know, almost all low-income kids. And I, you know, the teacher introduces me. I say, hey, my name is Ian Rowe. I'm designing this high school. And there's this concept that I want to teach about in schools, but I'm getting a lot of pushback. And I'd really love to get your advice. And so I say to these students, and you'll appreciate this as being someone who's written a lot about the success sequence, but I say to these students, these ninth grade students, if you knew that there were a series of decisions in your control that people like you who followed it, like kids like you who followed it, 97% of the time avoided poverty, 
would you want to know that? Would you want to know more about those series of decisions? And they said, well, of course I'd want to know. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't we want to know that? And I said, well, there are some people out there that say the real issue, if I start talking to you about that, you're ignoring the real issues, the, the systemic barriers that are really holding people like kids in this room, you know, entrenched in poverty. You know, and so they'd, they'd rather you not know at all. And they looked at me like I had a huge third eye. Like, what are you talking about? Why are you going to withhold that information from me? And it was just a fascinating conversation because we then proceeded to have a discussion about this thing called the success sequence where if you finish just your high school degree, you get a full-time job of any kind just so you learn the dignity and discipline of work. And if you have children, marriage first. 97% of millennials avoid poverty. It's not a guarantee. And what was interesting about the conversation at the end, you know, it's not as if I said, to these students, this must be the way that you practice, you know, decisions in your life. It's just, here are the likely rewards or consequences associated with this series of decisions, with this series of decisions. But at the end, these students, I felt respected as future decision makers in their own life. It's not that they don't think there aren't systemic barriers, but they're desperate for information about how other people seem to be navigating these systemic barriers that, you know, there's a great um, film out uh, right now, Top Gun and, uh, you know, Tom Cruise. And there's this impossible mission that they've got to blow up this uranium uh, mine. And in order to get into this country, they've got to take an F-18 fighter plane, drive it, uh, fly it above a mountain, down a mountain, through a ravine. It's impossible. None of the pilots believe that it can be done. So Tom Cruise steals an F-18 fighter plane, and, he, and he, he simulates, he does he does the actual course, and it changes everything for the pilots. They have a sense of possibility, and in my view, a sense of agency. They, they, it's like, wow, I understand the difficulty of the terrain, but I've just seen a pathway towards success. That's what I believe. That's why I've written this book. Our kids need to know that they can do hard things. Yes, there are barriers. Absolutely. But they are not insurmountable. So let's get to the free framework. In your book, you have four building blocks for developing agency. You have an acronym, FREE, which is a good one. What does FREE stand for? <laughs> I worked at MTV, man. If you, if you, know, if you want to you, get points across quickly, you got to you know, give something people can remember easily. Well, FREE, I wanted to create a framework so that young people could know that while there are institutional barriers, there is a way that they can overcome those barriers while simultaneously having a framework that says that they're not alone and that there are institutions that can support them, that the blame the victim people constantly ignore. So I really thought about this. Like, what do we know about human flourishing? That is collective wisdom. And the truth of the matter is, what I'm about to say is not rocket science. It's not like it's some radical set of ideas. It's what we've always known, but for some reason, we have lost the courage to say obvious things. So I'm now trying to make the implicit explicit. So free stands for family, religion, education. If we do those three things right, you'll ultimately get to the last E, which is entrepreneurship. Family is the first building block of any society. And what's key about this particular element of free, it's not about the family that you're from, 
It's about the family that you form. So if you're a young person and you're in the midst of a chaotic home environment, there are real challenges to that. And I, and I have many students in our schools who are in tough environments, but we never say that, well, I guess, I guess that's it for you. We say, you know what, you have the ability to create something different in your own life. So that's why teaching about things like the success sequence in schools can be so powerful. It's not a guarantee, but we got to give young people a shot to be successful. And that starts with giving them information about the family that they form. It gives them, them and their children, the best chances of success. The R is for religion. And this one, you know, you think marriage is a, is a third rail topic I to talk imagine. about. <laughs> you know, talk about um, introducing faith, especially at a time when the category of the highest growth amongst young people is what's called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who say they have no religious affiliation. And yet, while there's this growing number of young people who are adopting no religious faith, the data on those that are adopting a religious faith, and not like wokeism, not like religions that were created like five minutes ago, but like real structured religions, the levels of loneliness, depression, alienation, dramatically lower. People who are part of a community of, of others that love them, that care for them, there's power in faith. There just is. And again, that's not denying that organized religion has had lots of unfortunate negative stories sure. that have repelled, understandably repelled young people from going in that direction. But we just cannot deny, and there's a lot of data I put in the book about how a personal faith commitment can be transformative at the individual level. I also really try to encourage faith leaders to get more in the game and to become more relevant in the lives of young people. And I highlight uh, Seton Partners, which is a Catholic school network that actually runs charter schools. It's very fascinating and um, there are these schools, though, that can make a transformative difference because they are one of these mediating institutions that recognizes the importance of the moral development of their students in addition to math and reading and science. The E for education, relatively obvious, but there are a lot of kids that don't have access to high-quality education. We still, today in our country, only 37% of all kids are reading at uh, NAEP proficiency levels. NAEP stands for, you know, the National Assessment for Educational Progress, otherwise known as the nation's report card. And yet we've got kids trapped in school systems that are producing those outcomes. They don't have the ability to escape. That's not a knock on all public schools or some fantastic traditional district schools. But when you have generally middle and upper class people that have the ability to move to a good suburb or to send their kid to a high-end private school or a religious school, that's school choice. So why shouldn't that same privilege exist for the kids who need it the most? So within the book, I put out several policies around education, including even the end of race-based affirmative action, you know, increasing the number of measures around education to start including family structure to show how much that is a force that transcends all the usual suspects of like race and class and gender. So I go into some detail about ideas specifically around how to enhance educational opportunities for kids. But if you then have a strong family that you formed, a strong faith commitment, a strong education, that has now put you in the position not only for work, because work is important, it's a part of the success sequence, but this idea of entrepreneurship, this idea of becoming an owner, that 
you actually, and this is, this is part of America, this whole idea of becoming an informed risk taker. Like, how do you generate wealth? In our Vertex Partnership Academies, because of a partnership with the Charles Schwab Company, for $5, you can own a fractional share of a stock. So for $5, you can own a piece of Apple or Walmart or Google. So every kid is going to have a portfolio of 10 S&P 500 stocks where each quarter there'll be a report. It's like, wait, I got this many earnings. Why are my earnings up and yours down? You know, you get dividends. Why is that? And it's, it seems like a simple thing, but it starts to instill this idea that you're not just an owner of an iPhone. I'm sorry, you're not just a consumer of an iPhone. You're an owner. Like, what does that mean? And, and how did this product even come to be? What is that spirit of taking control, not only of your personal life, but your personal wealth, and so, uh, and, by, and by the way, entrepreneurship also includes social entrepreneurs, you know, folks like Booker T. Washington, who built a whole network of schools. It's this, this idea that once the foundation is built, particularly built around a foundation of family, religion, and education, your sense of agency now is unlimited. And that's, that's what I like to end with this, this idea of entrepreneurship, because I feel that that's... That's really, in many ways, the true American spirit. It's not the rugged individual who's just done it all by themselves, but now with these these institutions that have helped you form your ability to handle freedom, you now can unleash your own entrepreneurial mindset. So that entrepreneurial mindset that you're talking about, that component of free isn't, well, we need a bunch of people to start companies as much as it is we need to give the precursors and also the responsibility that comes with the freedom to act and to have some self-determination. Wow, you should write a book called Agency. <laughs> I'll just tell you, <laughs> tell you what. So, Ian, it, we have just a few more minutes of time with you. I want to hear a little bit about your experience with these concepts of agency. As somebody who runs charter schools and as somebody who's tried to build the actual mediating institutions— to instill these principles and experiences for students. So you spent a big chunk of your life running charter schools, mm -hmm. public prep and now Vertex. How on a day-to-day -day level do you develop agency in young people? And what would you say that you have tried to do that not enough schools are doing? Well, it's a good question. One of the reasons I run schools is it's not enough just to talk about these principles, you know, agency, hopefully it's a successful book and all that. But it's a book, you know? The question is, how do you bring these ideas into reality? Like, do these ideas work on 149th Street and 3rd Avenue? And so we are at a moment where I think we need to either build new institutions or strengthen existing ones that are actually the embodiments of the principles of agency. Because I think there's, there's more and more lack of confidence in our institutions so when you ask me, like, what do I do on a day-to-day -day basis, I'll give you an example. When I first learned this data around the success sequence, I just felt this is really important information that young people need to know. And so it's not enough for it to be sitting in a research study. How can I make this actually into curriculum that can be imparted to young people? Had huge pushback. You can't teach this. It's, you know, it's, you're imposing middle-class values. You know, a lot of kids, maybe they're in families that their, their families didn't follow this series of behaviors. So you'll be insulting to them. 
better not to teach them at all. And, and, and in fact, it's not the real issue anyway, because there are these structural barriers that have to be handled first. And so I remember talking to eighth grade parents to say, you know, you chose our school because uh, you wanted us not only to teach about math and reading and science, but you also wanted us to help impart those habits of mind and behaviors that would set your kid up for their best shot at success. And so we're going to be teaching, we're going to be talking about these things, about these behaviors of education, work, marriage, and children. And the very interesting response I got back from these families was, thank God someone is teaching my kids about these things. I wish someone had taught me that when I was growing up. And so one of the things I've learned on a day, on like what do we do every day is not listen to the gatekeepers who always seem to want to somehow insulate the people that they claim to represent from the information that, frankly, many of them are practicing in their own lives. And I try to say, no, 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 no. Let's trust the students that we have to be decision makers in their own life. One of the biggest questions I often get is like, Ian, how do you, how do you put this into practice? I mean, I agree with it, but gosh, if I were to say this in my schools, I'd be attacked. And so it's one of the reasons that in my book, Agency, I actually have literally a curriculum unit on how to teach the success sequence at the middle or high school level. And so if you want to bring this into reality in your own school, here's a way to do it. And so if any way that I can about how to animate these ideas in the real world is what I try to do on a day-to-day basis. Ian, as somebody who works in schools and sees a lot of different young people from a vantage point that most people don't, what would you like people to know about agency that they wouldn't know if they hadn't had that vantage, if they weren't working in schools? Well, if, you, if they weren't working in schools, it's very interesting. If they weren't working in schools and were just listening to the dominant narratives that seem to be exist in the world, they might just assume that they're all these victimized kids that are all marginalized or that they're either based on their skin color inherently oppressed or inherently an oppressor. You know, these, these, these ideologies trap everyone in certain roles. So if you're, if you're not interacting with kids on a day-to-day basis, you may not get the reminder that these kids have huge hopes and dreams and they recognize, especially if you're growing up in a community, a disadvantaged community, you recognize that there are challenges around you, but you're not just sitting around thinking, oh, woe is me. You're thirsty. You're hungry for a pathway to success. And so if you're a person that doesn't interact with kids, don't assume that there's a nation of victims that are just sitting around, you know, waiting for some force to uplift them. They're looking for the tools. There's a great observation that Alexis de Tocqueville made of America, where he said, you know, it's not that uh, America is more enlightened than any other nation that explains its greatness, rather its ability to repair her faults. And the reason I find that phrasing so powerful is that what he was referring to was that it's the country's innate ability to recognize its flaws and through the tools of the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, the amendments, it has the tools of self-betterment and self-renewal within our country. For people who don't interact with kids, recognize that every kid has the tools of self-betterment and self-renewal within them too. 
They're not victims. There are no victims here. And these tools of agency, my hope is that young people and people across the country embrace these pillars, family, religion, education, and then the payoff of entrepreneurship is a pathway to a meaningful life. Ian Rowe, the book's called Agency. We'll link to it in the show notes. Thanks for coming on the report card to talk to us about it. Matt, Nat, that was great, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, Ian Rowe. Like I said, we'll link to Agency and some of Ian's other work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And when you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps others find the show. You can send your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malthus.